0: what we've seen Paul do, essentially, is that chapter 12 shows that the primary characteristic of love is that it serves others. And then chapter 13 shows that the primary characteristic of love is that it submits properly And then chapter 14 and chapter 15, which we're in now, shows that love is a unifying agent. Love unifies it. There's a oneness that's brought about by this genuine love that is empowered in us through the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so we continue in that vein. And today's passage, these 14 verses that Lori just read, this passage comes on the heels of what is, I think, clearly the key verse in chapters 14 and 15. It's that verse that Warren left off with last week. It's verse 7. Welcome and accept one another because Jesus has welcomed and accepted you. This is a fulfillment verse. We have to get this. We have to understand this. This is a fulfillment verse. Jesus has fulfilled the principle of welcoming and accepting in such a sacrificial and complete way as to have never been done before and will never be done again, that, that he now welcomes you and I. And, and that enables, and he, and he does that perfectly, by the way. It's finished. So he does that perfectly. There's, there's no loophole, there's nothing else that needs to be done, there's no gap to be filled. He's done that perfectly and sacrificially, and therefore, you and I can begin to welcome one another, and we should welcome one another. And I think it's also helpful if we would just remind ourselves, who is it specifically that Jesus welcomed? Who who did he welcome? Well, he, he welcomed the properly religious people. That's who he welcomed. The people that knew how to wear their hair and their makeup and their clothes. The people who voted correctly, that's who... Okay, one person was tracking with me. That's really good. Okay, the rest of you are thinking about burritos and waffles. I get that, okay. He welcomed sinners. He welcomed outcasts. He welcomed those who are considered unclean. Guess what? He's describing you and me. He has welcomed us through the cross and through His resurrection. And all of this is done. I didn't quote all of verse 7. This is really important. All of this is done. Why? To glorify God. All of this is about the glory of God you and i are god's glory his chosen people the circumcised are god's glory even though they kind of messed everything up the gentiles those that he did not originally choose but who are certainly if you read this passage properly you understand they are welcomed and accepted by god they are a part of god's people they are a part of the gospel narrative they are also welcomed everybody is welcomed and that glorifies god and we're going to be glorified too paul tells us in romans this is a magnificent passage. It's always fascinating to me when you work through Romans and people say, well, you know, you get to verse chapter 15, 16, not that important. Oh, come on. This is some of the best stuff right here. So then verse 7 sums up all the, the love is a unifying agent talk that we've looked at in verse in chapters 14 and 15 thus far. But chapter 7 also then is like a, it's like a hinge verse or a swing verse. It's a gate that also opens us up to these 14 verses, verses 8 through 21. And here's the big idea. This is the big idea. No matter what, we are to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what, no matter what, we are to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel We are to testify to the gospel. We are to live by the gospel. We are to suffer for the gospel. And we are to embrace the gospel. And some of you may be new and you're wondering, okay, I hear that word gospel all the time. Exactly what does it mean? Well, the word literally translated means good news. And if there's good news, there has to be bad news. And so the bad news is that because of our sin, you and I are sinners. And because of that sin, we've been separated from God. And all of us truly believe at one time or another, and maybe you still do, we believe that somehow we can find our own salvation, we can find our own path, we can find our own methodology, we can find our own existential system in order to save us and to reunite us with God if there is in fact a God. But the problem is is that we can't do that. There's only one way that can happen and that is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you have to appropriate that to yourself. And He does that by the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and regenerating your heart and opening your eyes and opening your ears to the truth of the gospel. Paul even says that in, in one of the early verses that, that everything that God does is, to just, is just to demonstrate and, and showcase His truthfulness and His truthfulness is that He gave His Son as the gift to save you and I, to reconcile us to God. That's the good news. That is the gospel. And so today... Once again, we're in this application section of Romans. And so it's going to be a little less on the text side and a little bit more on the apply side. So I'm going to read through the text again a little bit more slowly, make a few comments, and then we're just going to apply, 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 apply. And I, and as I read through this text again, I just want you to remember, because I think this is important within the context of, of the passage that we're looking at it's very important to remember what paul's specific call was when he became a christian on the damascus road when christ converted his heart from one that was going to persecute and kill christians to one that was going to proclaim the gospel and 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 plant churches what specifically was his call there were two things number one Paul, a Jew and a very devout and religious Jew was supposed to go to the Gentiles and proclaim the good news to them and tell them that they're welcomed and accepted into the kingdom of God. And the Gentiles are all the non-Jews. The Gentiles are all, as far as the Jews are concerned, the Gentiles are the second-class citizens. The Gentiles are the unclean. Paul is going, essentially, in some respects, Paul is going to his enemies to tell them, you're included in the kingdom of God. You are welcomed and accepted. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been made righteous by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has to go to them and and proclaim that. That's the first call. And then the second call is this, and you're going to suffer for it. That's his call to proclaim the good news to people you don't even really care for and then you're going to suffer for it we started a uh, if we started a clipboard in the back of the room and had it kind of crisscross all the way up here and said we want you to sign up for this new ministry you're going to go to your enemy and proclaim the gospel and you're going to suffer for it how many of you are in that's what Paul did for the rest of his life almost 30 years and he did a good job by the power of the spirit it even says in this passage it is only by the power of the holy spirit only by the power of christ that he was able to do this he did a great job he planted a lot of churches and lots of people came to know jesus but he also suffered too didn't he all of those things were absolutely true so let's let's go through this a little bit let me read that first reread that first paragraph 8 through 13 Paul writes, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the chosen people, to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel. He became a servant to them, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given by the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he quotes four different uh, Old Testament verses that, that, that remind everybody that the Gentiles are included in this gospel narrative. So verses 8 and 9 all comes back to the idea, once again, in this church of bringing the Jews and Gentiles to get, together, getting them to, to uh, set aside their differences, settle their differences, whatever it is they need to do with their differences, and bring them together. And in fact, I would say that verses 8 and 9 are kind of the other bookend for that verse that we had almost two years ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So these verses, 15, 8, and 9, bookend with one sixteen beautifully. He's trying to bring these groups of people together. And then you look at verses 9 through 12. Paul's just quoting the Old Testament, okay? Understand, Paul's got somebody there probably writing this letter for him and, and you gotta know, he doesn't have a laptop there, okay? He had, and this was normal for a guy like Paul back then, he had the entire Hebrew Bible rec- uh, memorized. All 39 books, and he had it memorized in Hebrew, which is much more difficult to do than English. He had the whole thing memorized. Understand, so you're like on Google all the time, and you're real smart. Paul was Google of the Hebrew Bible. He was the most amazing Old Testament search engine you could ever find. He just pulls this stuff out. And he knows not only, he's not proof texting, he knows the context of these verses and he's using it. And then verses 13 and 8, you put those together and it's just a beautiful picture again. I just want to remind you of this, of the Trinity. It's Trinitarian. You see God the Father, the Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit in those two verses. There's the fullness of God there. And then he writes in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now that's interesting. Paul knows a lot about the church in Rome even though he's never been there. Now why would that be? Two reasons. Number one, there's a lot of people in Rome that Paul has already met along the way doing his ministry in other cities. There, some of those people are in Rome now, so he gets reports from them, and then that's the second reason is because there, there was a lot of oral communication back then, and people would people would communicate and let everybody know how things are going. So he would hear about them, and he would know he would know that they knew that. The church at Rome knew the gospel, just like you and I in in Redemption Arcadia. We know the gospel, but like you and me today, Paul also knows that they didn't always do the gospel well. Even though you know it, we don't always do it well, right? Isn't that true? Can I get an amen? Warren was here last week and he was getting amens and hallelujahs. I'm ready. The least you can do, all right, here you go. The least you can do is you can say, yes, you are correct, pastor. Something like that, something very Arcadian, okay? That would be very helpful. All right? Anyway, they didn't always do it very well. So they needed reminding. They needed instruction. Just like you and me today. There's this beautiful passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 where Peter comes and he says, I'm reminding you of all this stuff that you already know. You already know the gospel. You already know what the gospel results in. You've been living the gospel. You understand the gospel. You already know it. But I'm reminding you again. I'm going to stir you up again. I'm going to keep on stirring you up in the gospel because guess what? We need to be reminded. That's why we come to church every week. That's why we go to Bible study. That's why we're in our redemption communities. We need to be reminded. We need to be stirred up. You don't just get the gospel once and then go off on your way. You, you, You need the community of the gospel as well so that we're stirred up and constantly reminded. So he says, instruct one another. We need to instruct one another. Here you go. We don't need a new message about God. We just need to be reminded about the message that God gives us of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then verses 15-18, through Paul writes this. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 is huge. I'm going to come back to that later. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Here's, in a sense, I'm going to unpack some of the the application of this in, in a few minutes, but... In a sense, this is one of the things that Paul's saying with these verses. Paul knows his place. Paul knows his call, he knows his place, and he knows his giftedness. He knows what he's supposed to do. And so the question you and I should ask ourselves is, do we know our place? Do we understand our call? Do we understand our giftedness? Are we, are we trying to overextend who we are? Is that possible? Run into that occasionally. But here's the thing that you and I run into a lot more than just occasionally. Are we underextending who we are in Christ? That's a big qu- Has God given you a call and a giftedness that you're not quite fulfilling yet? We need to analyze that in our lives. Paul knew what his giftedness was. He knew what his call was and it was being, it was being fulfilled. At the end of his life, he says, you know, I ran the race. I fought the good fight. I gave it everything I had by the power of the Spirit. And then he wraps up this passage by saying, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So, here we go. First thing by way of application I want to talk about is this. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for all. And I know some of you are like, well, that's pretty obvious. I could have figured that out. My, out on my, I, I, I didn't even have to get out of bed this morning. Right? Okay, But we still need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for Republicans and Democrats the gospel is for the U of A and, the a, and ASU. That's why we planned in Tucson. We finally got our arms around the fact that the U of A needs a gospel. <laughs> and here's the deal. Part of the challenge in the Roman church is that the Jewish Christians started it. I, I, in Rome, primarily, their original leadership, their, their founding leadership was Jewish. They were Christians, but they were Jewish. And so they were the leaders. They kind of had things their way. And then Claudius, the emperor, comes along and sometime around the year 50, he decides, all right, we don't want the Jews in Rome anymore. Let's get the Jews out of Rome. So the Jews are asked to leave Rome. They're they're tossed out of Rome. So they're gone. So now the Gentile brethren and cistern, they step up into leadership. And now they're leading the church at Rome. But then here comes Nero in 54 Nero ruled from 54 to 68 and he says, "Eh, let's let the Jews back in. So now the Jews are coming back into Rome and uh uh-oh, we got a problem. Have you ever started something and led something, then been cast out and then come back and asked to participate in the leadership again and there's new leadership with new thinking and a new culture and a new philosophy and a new way of doing things? That's hard to do. And so there's some tension there uh, between these two groups and Paul recognized that, right, recognizes that and he wants to remind them and he's especially here reminding the Jews that although the Gentiles who can be very annoying to some of them, although they're there, you need to remember that they are a part of the plan of God. They are a part of the gospel narrative. They are a part of everything that God has been doing since Genesis and all the way through Revelation. Revelation. This wasn't an afterthought. This has been from the very beginning. He's saying the gospel is for everyone. Understand, if Jesus, if Jesus fulfills what the prophets and the patriarchs said about the Messiah coming for the Jews, it means that he also fulfilled what the prophets and the patriarchs said about Jesus coming to include the Gentiles as well. Because frankly, the nation of Israel didn't do a very good job of that the way they were supposed to. They did on occasion. But they didn't do it as completely as God wanted them to. And that's why Paul quotes all of that Old Testament, uh, all those Old Testament verses. For instance, verse 9 is a quotation from David's Psalm, uh, David Psalm 18, where David had gone out and had conquered some nations and he incorporated non-Jewish nations into uh, the nation of Israel but he also saw them as, as a, among the heritage of God's people. David saw them as part of the heritage of God's people. So we proclaim the gospel to everyone because the gospel is for everyone. Here's the second thing I want to talk about. Life in Christ is liturgy. Life in Christ is liturgy. Now, I know some of you are like, what is liturgy? That's a very churchy word. I hope you're going to explain that. Nope, we're moving on to point three. No, we're going to explain. We're going to (laughs) explain. I know it's a very churchy word, but, but I think it's really important. This is all about verse 16. I said was really key, really key and I was going to come back to Paul writes in verse 16 that by the grace and power given to him by God by the way it's the very same grace that you and I have today Paul didn't get some super apostle grace that was only for him and we get secondary or leftover grace from God you understand what I'm saying we have the same grace and power that was that Paul had as well we need to remember that Paul was really special I could never be him oh yeah just try to apply the Holy Spirit to your life. You might be surprised what happens. Anyway, by the very same grace that Paul that Paul had from God, he is a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles and this was his priestly duty. And all of it, he says, glorified God. All of it. Him doing his ministry glorified God. You and I doing our ministry, serving others, loving others, is glorifying to God. But the point is, is that he ministered to the gentiles doing his priestly duty and that word translated minister in that in that verse there is really important and very specific it's not the word doulos which means slave it's not the word diakonos which means deacon or servant it's the word liturgon from which we get that churchy word liturgy it's the word liturgon and that word means having to do with priestly work having to do with the fact that you and I are all priests no matter where we are doing the work of God. So I would say it this way. Paul has a liturgical heart. Paul has a priestly heart. Paul has a heart for doing his ministry and serving other people. And we should not be afraid of that word because we should have a liturgical heart as well. We think of the... Word liturgy, if you know anything about what the word liturgy means, we we think of it mostly as, well, it's kind of the order of service on Sunday mornings when we go to church. It's kind of what we work our way through. So liturgy is when we stand and when we sit and when we pray and when we sing and when we listen and when we respond. And that is true. We have a liturgical outline that we work our way through. You could say it that way, but that's not all it is. That's just a very small part of what that that word actually means. Means In the full sense, liturgy is the sacrificial work of anyone who is a minister and servant of Jesus Christ. And that fits right in, by the way, with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Some of you are like, I knew he'd get to 1 and 2 eventually. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is the beginning of this entire section of of chapters 12 through 16 in Romans, where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is your liturgy. All of life is all for Jesus. Therefore, all of life is liturgical. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We believe that Paul chose this word because as a tent maker, we forget that Paul was actually a tent maker. We, we think he was just a vocational minister with a job as a pastor and a church planter and that was it. No, he was a tent maker. He was bivocational. He made tents so that he could earn some money so that he could do ministry. So as a tent maker, not just a, as a member of, of the staff at first whatever church of wherever, as a tent maker, and here's how this applies to us, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a graphic design artist, as an architect, as a barista, as a teacher, as a mother, as a police officer, as a father, as a financial analyst, as a professional athlete, whatever it is that you're doing in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, wherever, in the public sphere, Paul saw his ministry And his work for Christ as missionary and and he was a priest offering sacred worship to God by doing that I think we forget that too and this is really important we do ministry because we're called to do ministry oh I got to go do ministry got to work downstairs in the children's ministry got to got to hand out bullets and got to do this got to do that okay it's an act of worship when we're doing that we're worshiping God through our service we're all priests. This is really, really important. And he did this all the time everywhere he went. His entire life was an offering of worship by proclaiming the gospel and shepherding people. And this is critical. We need to remember, and this applies to us, no matter where we are, no matter what, what Paul was doing, no matter where he was, no matter what he was wearing, Paul was a priest and he was offering sacrifice to God, proclaiming the gospel and sharing with Not only Gentiles, but also with the Jews. In order to get to some of the Gentiles, he had to kind of go through the Jews at times as well. And we should too. That's our call too. All of life is all for Jesus. Therefore, all of our lives are going to be liturgical in one sense or another. And we need to be constantly reminded of this. So I would ask you this morning, what's your priestly service? What is your liturgical heart you don't have to be on a church staff to do that. And I know, that we're still struggling in the 21st century. We struggled with it all through the 20th century as well. We're still struggling with this, this um, artificial divide between clergy and laity. No, we are all ministers. You don't have to be on a church staff to be serving and ministering and proclaiming the gospel. Your work in your context is just as much, if not more, of a ministry than mine or Cody's or Sean's. That's really important to understand. In fact, most of you have way more opportunities in particular areas that we, we that you have opportunities that Cody and I and Sean may never even see. You're a part of the body. And you need a liturgical heart. You have a liturgical heart. Just need to live into it now. Third one, and this, this last one is a, is a two-parter. In whom do we boast? And do we worship a methodology or do we worship Jesus? In whom do we boast? And do we worship a methodology or do we worship Jesus? So here's the first part. Paul accomplished a lot, right? I mean, he, he accomplished a lot. And Paul boasts about it. There's a number of times in the New Testament, including here, where he boasts about all the things that he accomplished. But his boasting is always in Christ. And it is in this passage too. Just look at verse 17. He's bo- what he's boasting about is what Christ has done in him. He, he's just the tool, the messenger, the conduit, for Christ. God used Paul to convert literally thousands of non, non-Jews, Gentiles, uh, to, to Jesus, to, to come to Christianity. And he, and he did a lot of Jews too. Paul also planted more churches than the Southern Baptists in the 20th century, amen? I mean, he planted a lot of churches. And, and, and in an age where the best transportation a guy could get was a pair of sandals, he, he covered more than 1,400 miles doing this. That's that whole Jerusalem deliricum thing, okay? He didn't even have a bicycle, okay? Yet Paul takes no credit for this, no credit. Christ did this through him, but it was all Christ. Uh, 45 years ago, I was 10 years old, and I was playing Little League Baseball. It was my second year in Little League Baseball. It was my last year in Little League Baseball as well, but it was my second year in Little League Baseball. And um, I was in, I don't know, it was the third or fourth game of the season, and and I, was, and I was doing all right, not not great. I was doing okay, and I was up to bat, and the pitcher threw a, a pitch up there that I, I, I perceived was just big, fat, and juicy. I mean, this thing was just dying to be deposited somewhere else, okay, and so I took as big a home run swing as any 10-year-old could bring. I, I mean, I mean, this thing started in the, down in Florida, swept up through the South and Texas and ended in Los Angeles. I mean, it was amazing. Small tornado was started, everything. It was the biggest swing I ever had. And I actually did connect with the ball, but it sort of just tapped the, the end of the bat because my eyes were so closed so hard, I was swinging so hard, but it hit and the ball kind of squirted down the first baseline towards the first baseman. So it was a ground ball at the first baseman and now it's kind of a race to first base between me and the first baseman's got to get it and just move over to first base. And so the race is on. I'm trying to beat the ball down there and all that stuff. And so I get there and, and just as the ball gets to the first baseman, it goes through his legs and it goes into shallow right field. And and thankfully, the right fielder was so busy thinking about his after-game snow cone that he wasn't backing up the first baseman the way he was supposed to be. So it's just sitting there in right field. So I immediately take second base. Now, to his credit, the first baseman immediately turned around and went and grabbed the ball and then turned and fired the ball to second base, thinking he was going to get me there. Of course, in, in his enthusiasm of throwing the ball to second base, he overthrew second base. So now the ball goes into left field. And that plays right in front of me, so I know I can take third base and here comes the left fielder running in to grab the ball of course he thinks he can get me at third base and so he launches the ball at third base it ends up in the third baseline bleachers and I go home and I score and the fans were going wild my brothers and sisters yes all 15 of them <laughs> and I was so excited when I got back to the dugout our bench and the, and the guys are slapping me on the back and everything and I was telling them I finally hit my first home run now you get this, right? You get you' right? You get this. So the official scorer who's sitting there at that little weird bench, OK, he doesn't even score it as a hit. It's three errors. <laughs> OK, I didn't do anything. You understand that? I, I was assisted the entire way. OK Now. I am not saying that the Holy Spirit in your life is three errors. That's not what I'm saying, but I am telling you that when you and I start to say things like, I did this. I increased church attendance by 300%. Last week, I I led 16 people to Jesus Christ. Come on, you and I need to get some perspective. It's God in us doing this. And, And Jesus understands that. And so He gives us the power to do this because He knows that we can't do this without Him. If the Lord does not build the house the workers labor in vain so how about you is it about Jesus and his glory or is it about you is it about me and then the second part none of this should be used as a methodology however for us to achieve some sort of a happy and fulfilled life I'm not saying that a happy and a fulfilled life is not a good thing and not worthy of us trying to figure out and pursue that's not what I'm saying But our proclivity is to try to find a methodology or a formula or a routine in order to do that. And we don't need that because Jesus is the one who does it. Jesus is the one who fulfills us. Jesus is the one who gives us the joy. Jesus is the one who makes us happy. Jesus is all of these things. It's him and him alone. But again, like I said, we're humans and we're westernized humans, which makes it even worse. And so we want a method, not a savior. We want a routine or a technique, not a Lord. And and so we we read stuff like like what James Montgomery Boyce writes. And, And I love this. He's right about this. Let me read it to you. He says this. Suffering is the path to glory. Service is the path to fulfillment. Love is the path to joy. And that's all true, but... You have to read the context in which Boyce is writing, and he's saying that it's only true because we're in Christ, and Christ is the one who is empowering this. Christ. It's because we're in Christ that we end up suffering and serving and loving. Suffering and serving and loving alone isn't going to fulfill anybody. It's always going to be an empty, an, an empty journey if you're just looking for some methodology to build you up and fulfill you. We need to know him and him alone. He is the answer. But too often we hear something like this and we want to turn it into a methodology or a formula, formula. There's a guy named Todd Cashton. He's a PhD in psychology and, and a researcher. And by the way, he's not a Christian. He is a secular humanist. But he, he does lots of research into what, what is it that fulfills people and makes people happy. And, and he looks at people who are just pursuing pleasure and he looks at people who like to serve. And he says, it's interesting, the people who are serving, the people who are selfless, the people who have a selfless outlook on life, they seem to be more fulfilled, happier, and more well-adjusted than the people who are just seeking their own pleasure. The people who are specifically going after their happiness, they're the ones that are the most miserable in life. But then he says, not me, not a biblical commentator, then he says, but the problem with reporting on this is then the, the person who is seeking pleasure will see that and they'll say, okay, I am going to become a selfless person so that I can be happy and fulfilled. And he says, then it becomes a methodology. It's not your metaphysic, it's not your ethic. And he says, it's just, an, it's just a practice and frustration. And ultimately, you and I have to figure that out even in the church. It is not a methodology. It's not a routine. It's not a technique. And, and most of you, I, I, I hate to say this, but most of you will come in on Sunday morning looking for that one thing that's going to fix Monday morning for you. And you know what? It just doesn't work that way. You need to know Him and Him alone. You need to have His wisdom. You need to love Him. You need to pursue Him And then over time, you're going to uh, begin to understand that the problems on Monday morning you can deal with because you have Christ in you and you have his wisdom. And besides, they're temporal and he's eternal and now you're eternal as well. We don't need a methodology. We just need Jesus. And when we turn things into a methodology, when we say, here's four steps to better whatever or six steps to this, We're placing our faith in a technique, and not in Jesus, and that'll frustrate us. Let me just take a second here, since we're in this neighborhood. I want to speak to the purpose of the church right here, because this this connects to this, and this is really important. Here's the purpose of the church: we proclaim the gospel. We teach the full counsel, cover to cover, including the maps of God's word. We have to look at the map sometimes to know what's going on. So we proclaim the gospel, teach the full counsel of God's word, and then we shepherd and disciple people so that they might become equipped to do kingdom work. We equip the saints. That's it. There you go. We proclaim the gospel. We teach God's word. We shepherd and disciple people so that they might become equipped. And this is biblical. But, as my wife has mentioned every time I've brought that up, she says, you know, that's not very sexy. It's not very exciting. And here's what I want you to understand. She, she's not saying you're wrong and you shouldn't say that. That's not what she's saying at all. She's just reminding me that that's not going to jack a lot of people up. P- people want to come in and they want to get roused. They, they want to get excited about some thing that we're supposed to accomplish. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to teach God's word and we're going we're to disciple people. We're gonna we're gonna equip them to do work, and that's what God's want. God wants, and so that's what we're doing, and that's what we're gonna do. You need to re, just let me remind you: we are not Nordstroms; we are the bride of Christ, and there's a big difference. And Paul says this all through Romans 14 and 15. He says unity trumps preferences. You need to remember that unity trumps preferences and i know we all have preferences i got that preferences are not a bad thing but the minute preferences get in the way of loving each other and building each other up and the and the, and the one and others the minute preferences get in the way that becomes a problem we need to keep jesus in the gospel as primo that's what we need to do keep our eyes on jesus keep our focus there you know verse 8 The beginning of this passage says Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So again, who are the circumcised? Well, they're God's people. It's Israel. And what was the problem with Israel? Well, the problem with Israel was that they thought that they were saved by keeping the law. They thought that's where their salvation and fulfillment came. They didn't need a servant the way Christ serves, or so they think. Yet Christ came to serve and save them because just like you and me, we need a Savior. Do you realize that even though, biblically speaking, we would not be considered the circumcised, we would be, most of us, would be considered the uncircumcised. We're, most of us are Gentiles. We're non-Jewish. Even so, we're just like them. We're just like that. And I know, you know, I don't have the Mosaic law. No, you don't, but you got something else. Every one of us has a code. Every one of us has... It has some sort of an existential system. Every one of us has a morality. Every one of us has a worldview. Every one of us has a rationalization or an excuse or a validation or a self-affirmation. Every one of us does. And at some point in our lives, we all said the same thing. I don't need a Savior. A savior. I don't need a Lord. I don't need Jesus. We got this. I got this. I can take care of this. I have faith in myself. I know. I have wisdom. The problem is we really don't we don't have it and we can't save ourselves and here's what's funny to me in the deep recesses of our hearts where culture tells us we find our greatest goodness right in the deep recesses of our hearts that's where we know that what I'm saying is absolutely true we don't have this our, eth- our, our metaphysics our existential systems Our excuses, our rationalizations, our worldviews are not going to do it. We need Jesus. And you look at verse 13. It's a beautiful expression of the gospel and where true hope and joy reside. Paul Paul writes in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing in what? In Jesus Christ. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now what is it that destroys human beings' hope? What is it that destroys our hope? Let me close by reading this passage from a, a, a great old Bible commentary named um, uh, William Barclay. And, and I think you'll resonate with this. William Barclay, in his commentary on Romans, writes about how people naturally want peace, right? We want peace, right? But we lose it due to inner tensions or disturbing circumstances. And then he quotes Barclay. Here's what Barclay says The ancient philosophers sought for what they called atorexia that's a t atorexia not anorexia they weren't seeking for that okay they were seeking for atorexia and the definition of atorexia is the untroubled life we want the untroubled life don't we don't we want that the untroubled life they're seeking the untroubled life they wanted above all serenity (laughs) any Seinfeld fans in here Frank Costanza Serenity now! Did that work for Frank Costanza, by the way? I know it's just a television show, but... They wanted, above all, serenity. That serenity which is proof-alike against the shattering blows and petty pinpricks of human existence. One would almost say that today, serenity is a lost possession. There are two things which make serenity impossible. Here's the first. There is an inner tension... There is the inner tension. Man lives a distracted life. For the word distract literally means to pull apart. So long as man is a walking civil war, so long as he himself is a battleground, so long as he is a split personality, there can obviously be no such thing as serenity. There is only one way out of this, and that is for self to abdicate to Christ. When Christ controls, the tension is gone. And then B, the second one. There is worry... About external things, There are many who are haunted by the chances and changes of life. H.G. Wells tells how in New York Harbor he was once on an ocean liner. It was foggy and suddenly out of the fog there loomed another large ocean liner and the two ships slid past each other with only feet to spare. Wells was suddenly face to face with what he called the general large dangerousness of life. The general, large, dangerousness of life. It is hard not to worry, for man is characteristically a creature who looks forward to guess and fear. The only end to that worry is the utter conviction that whatever happens, God's hand will never let his child, uh, never cause his child a needless tear. We're going to shed tears, but he will never allow us to shed a needless tear. Things will happen that we can't understand but if we are sure enough of love we can accept with serenity those things which wound the heart and baffle the mind what this is all about if we speak in theological terms is faith in the sovereignty of God God is sovereign God is good God is majestic God is merciful God is love And he comes to you and he says, look, I can do for you what you can't do for yourself and I'm glad to do it. And so I would just encourage you, if you're one of those persons that's hoping in your clever metaphysics or in the fact that the culture tells you that you're basically a good person or whatever it is, I'm here to tell you that you can come to Christ and have the answer. Let's pray together. God, we ask that... um, you would just continually open our hearts to your gospel that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every day and that we would preach the gospel to each other every single day that we would be stirred up and reminded always of your love for us your goodness to us your mercy for us and what your son means to us god we ask that in jesus name amen